On Monday, October 7th, at Caesars Palace in Las Vegas, the Ava Foundation is holding a Vessel Health and Preservation Lunch and Learn, featuring Nancy Moreau, Nancy Trick, Peter Carr, Trisha Clyden, Amanda Ullman, and Shelley DeVries. This exciting luncheon, which unites global subject matter experts discussing the core principles of vascular access, is made possible through support from 3M, Bebron, Medline Industries, and Teleflex. This luncheon is only open to attendees of the 2019 AVA Scientific Meeting in Las Vegas at Caesars Palace on October 4th to the 7th. To learn more and register, visit avainfo.org annual. From the Association for Vascular Access, this is the I Save That Podcast. And you have arrived at Season 2, Episode 11, Part 2 of the Vena Contention discussion on the I Save That Podcast. This is Ramsey Nazrala, joined always by Eric Sager. What's going on, Ramsey? I'm really excited about this, this episode. You know, last week we posted Part 1 of the Vein of Contention episode, and that included a really in-depth conversation about the dorsum of the hand for an IV, uh, specifically for outpatient procedures, as well as IV insertion in the emergency department, you know, during blood sampling and maybe when admission to the hospital is unsure. Those two pretty much tied together really nicely. And then we discussed two PIVs in the same vein or even in the same arm, as well as the discussion or the difference between clipping versus trimming. And that all was stemmed from the Andy Murray episode, which is episode two of season two, which Dr. Jack Ladun, and he sent us an email at podcast at avainfo.org with his vein of contention and wanting to get a panel together, which we were able to do. And I really enjoyed that conversation. And I think that this episode is a nice bow on top of it. Um, we touch on, you know, is there ever a place for the awkward location of an IV insertion, such as fingers, ankles, toes, or, or breast? Or if a patient has achieved a certain number of PIV failures, at what point uh, should clinicians consider a different device? You know, the clinical context is obviously important in that discussion, as well as a new metric, you know, number of devices divided by number of inpatient days. So I think Dr. Jag spearheaded all of this, and we have a great panel with Nicole Marsh, Jocelyn Hill, Sheila Hale, Peter Carr, John Bell, Dr. Jack, and as well as Judy Thompson. I hope I'm not forgetting anybody. Otherwise, they'll let me know about it. Um, but you know, <laughs> I'm on it too. But you know, whatever you are, you are <laughs> but you're not as important as they are. Obviously, correct. Like um, so, but the thing that's important, that's cool about this, is if you didn't listen to part one, that's completely fine. You don't need to to enjoy 100 of of part two, which is this episode. Right. And don't forget to like and subscribe to the I Save That podcast on your favorite streaming device, whether it's iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Uh, if you and if you have any feedback like Dr. Jack or a vein of contention of your own, you can hit us up at podcast at avainfo.org. Right. And this episode is made possible by support from the Ava Foundation. And I'd like to shout out the companies that are making the Ava Foundation's Vessel Health and Preservation Lunch and Learn at the scientific meeting possible. Um, so I'm going to do that now. You cool with that? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love awesome. to hear. 3M Science offers a broad portfolio of innovative tools that can help you protect every IV catheter, something Ava is very big on, from insertion to removal. Hand hygiene, skin preps, barrier films, securement devices, transparent dressings, and disinfecting caps. 3M offers all of that. Thank you for 3M for supporting Vessel Health and Preservation. 
Vibron Medical is an infusion therapy leader that develops, manufactures, and markets innovative medical products and services. Vibron is committed to eliminating preventable treatment errors and enhancing patient, clinician, and environmental safety. Thank you, Vibron, for supporting Vessel Health and Preservation. Hospital-acquired infections have three lines of defense, environment, caregiver, patient. Wherever the source of a transmission, Medline is there with solutions grounded in best practice to help you fight and prevent HAIs. You know, Medline's also really ramping up its vascular access division. Yeah, they are. They're supporting a lot with Java as well. We've been working on a legacy content project with them, and and they've they've been extremely helpful, and I appreciate their support immensely. Yes, thank you, Medline, for supporting Vessel Health and Preservation. And finally, Teleflex. Finding solutions to prevent vascular access device-related complications requires strategic thinking and partnership among all levels. Teleflex aligns innovative products, clinical education, and performance programs under a single vascular access strategy. Thank you, Teleflex, for supporting Vessel Health and Preservation. And without further ado, let's get to part two of the Bait of Contention discussion. All right, then. Is there ever a place for an awkward location? Awkward locations on the body, like uh, fingers, ankles, toes, the breast, scalp, the foot. Is there a time and place, time or place for, for using those uh, routes for, for cannulation? Short, short answer, no. Um, unless you're a pediatric patient and, and we go in the feet there. Sure, but right. I think if there were an emergent situation, grab an IO. But there's never been a time where a patient says, yeah, go ahead and use my breast. That vein there is prominent. No, no. <laughs> we um, stabilize them with what we can find that's not in the breast, chest, leg, abdomen. Where else have I seen them? Gosh, high up in the, um, like a collateral vein up in the axillary region. So no, those aren't appropriate whatsoever. And find a specialist, find someone with ultrasound that has proficiency and put an IV that's actually going to suit that patient and get them through some therapy. This is Judy Thompson. I'm the director of clinical education for the Association for Vascular Access. Of course, there'll be circumstances in rural hospitals without resources that, um, you know, may not be able to, you know, do something better. So, you know, do you mean better be than a breast vein? Jack? Yeah, so talking about the breast vein, talking about the breast vein, somebody, you know, uh, somebody with their skill set comes across a patient that needs IV access and they find, you know, they find this uh, breast vein. Um, certainly, I don't think anybody would put the patient to sleep with that, you know, hopefully with that. But in the situation we're talking about uh, for drawing blood and administering some fluid in the emergency department while they're trying to determine uh admission what's the big say what's the big harm in it you um you know we're not expecting it to last uh my name is jack lejean i'm a general surgeon and uh the um, director uh medical director at chesapeake vascular access in the baltimore area i'm past president of the association for vascular access i'm sure you're saying this in jest i've got to believe that Uh, not, (laughs) not not completely so I've never I've never seen a cannula in a breast before. Oh, Nicole, I've I'll seen you, I, I've seen far too many. Far too many photos. Far too, far many. too many. But it, right. It's, okay. It's really I'm pleased I haven't. Part of that problem really too, Jack, that. is they're not just going to pull blood and and look for diagnoses with it. They're going to infuse on that little baby, and then we're going to have we're going to have some extravasations. We're going to have some infiltrations. 
And I, I think that's that's just an easy way out. There's no way that that's an appropriate vein on anyone. Because there's other great veins to, to be found somewhere. Um, Judy, okay. I, I ahead, just want to... I, I've been involved in this conversation many times online and in other forums. Um, let me just tell you the story of the first uh, boob vein that I that I cannulated. Uh, very large lady, status asthmaticus, absolutely 100% unequivocal an emergency. And what she needed, um, she needed a tube and she needed um, some solumedrol and some other drugs to, to help turn her around very, very quickly. Um, I attempted in the antecubital, was unsuccessful. I looked down and here's this ginormous vein in her, uh, kind of over her axilla area, you know, in her, in her shoulder. Uh, I cannulated it. We got her turned around. I, I agree that that is not an IV that should stay in and it's not something that she should be having three days later in the ICU, et cetera. I, if I had that case again today, I would have gotten through that initial um, first few minutes and I would have gone back. A lot of people said these, these patients need IOs. I'm a huge proponent of the IO. The IO is has some downsides and I, I don't know that some people are treating that like it's the automatic go-to in any difficult situation. And I'm not at all certain that that's, that that's true. I've talked to, I know you've had one. I've talked to other people that have had one and uh, they're painful when they're infused through. And so I think we have to factor that in uh, when, when having this discussion. This is John Bell. I'm a vascular access specialist from Bangor uh, area of Maine. And I, uh, my background is emergency medicine and the operating room. I agree, John. There, I do. I, I'm a huge advocate of IOs. And I, my personal opinion, I wasn't in your situation where um, you had to tube this lady, but knowing that you had to put, you had to intubate. I would think that would have been a, a perfect situation for an IO. Yeah, they hurt to infuse. They don't hurt to get. They don't hurt to get whatsoever. They're on a scale of one to ten. They're probably like a two point five or a three, but infusions probably more like a ten. I would still vote for the IO in that situation. You've got a fifteen gauge that you know is going to stay there. It's in the medullary space, so we can agree to disagree. Still love you. I think in an emergency case like that, the intraosseous would be ideal. John was able to get one of these awkward veins quickly. It looks like that would be acceptable as well. Knowing that it's not going to be the long-term, and the I.O. is not a long-term solution. The I.O. is supposed to be removed in 24 hours, you know, puts us back into the hunt for a good vein um, relatively quickly. And the other problem with putting a, an I.V. in an odd place is, again, when they travel from the emergency room to the unit, I had a patient that had one in the breast and nobody even knew. It's covered up by the gown. Nobody's looking. Yeah. And those kind of IVs get left in. Uh, you're a vascular access specialist, John. You're gonna you're gonna make sure that 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 IV is removed. But that is not the case uh, in the general nursing population. This is Sheila Hale, and I am from Austin, Texas, and I am a CLAPSI prevention coordinator in a large hospital system. Absolutely, Sheila. I agree 100%. And I, I think I would certainly make a difference between any vascular access specialist 
making a call and saying this is the this is the appropriate vein at this time and a nurse generalist who's who's making that call with with much less background and data and and consideration i agree 100 percent. let me also say real quick um since i started ultrasound i can count on one hand literally the number of ivs i've ever had to put in the feet uh the last one i had to put in the foot was a again just for context was a was a hospice patient that was literally at the end of life. Um, we were unable to uh, get a, a a midline that we were attempting to get in for pain control, and the only after after about an hour and fifteen minutes of of assessing with ultrasound and working, the only thing I could get in her was a twenty two in her foot, and and we were able to get her through. That just stands out to me as a very difficult case. Um, so I think. Ultrasound is a huge game changer, as we all know. As uh, Nicole mentioned earlier, the the problem is that we're that we're starting to have. We used to have a problem of people not having the training. Now people have enough training to use ultrasound, uh, but again, in in the ER world, uh, too many of them are still using the ultrasound to to access the antecubital space, uh, or they're immediately um, jumping up into uh, the brachial basilic, shutting down those uh, potential sites for picks. Um, in the in the future, and that that's that's a that's an area that we need to we need to train to. But for me, um, you know, I haven't looked at anybody's thumb veins, feet, breasts, uh, other weird sites um, because I have the ultrasound available. And and um, basically, the last ER that I was working in, those sites weren't getting used because they were going to call one of the specialists that we had in the ER. Uh, before they before they ever looked at somebody's foot. So John, this um, you've been educated. You're a specialist, and this whole conversation comes down to education. So nobody wants to put a patient at risk. Nobody wants to put it in a bad spot. Nobody. I don't believe anybody really wants to put it in a patient's breast. So it's it comes down to education and training, and that's what we need to keep attacking, I think, across the U.S. and across the world. Absolutely. Another th thing is, you know, as we're all bringing up, the patient context is critical. You know, there's always going to be some exception in a certain strange circumstance where you might do something that is suboptimal, but in that particular context, it um, seemed to be appropriate. 100%. 100%. Have you registered for the largest scientific meeting in Ava's 33-year history yet? Last year, over 1,400 attendees took advantage of inspirational general sessions, insightful educational breakouts, a sold-out exhibit hall, and more than 100 research posters at what was then Ava's largest meeting ever. This year's conference registrations are trending far ahead of that record-setting meeting. With keynote speaker Dr. Didier Pitet from the World Health Organization, more general sessions, scientific breakouts, and innovative industry partner exhibitions than ever before, the 2019 AVA Scientific Meeting from October 4th through October 7th in Las Vegas should be on your calendar. For this year's conference finale, the AVA Foundation is holding a Vessel Health and Preservation Lunch and Learn, featuring Nancy Moreau, Nancy Trick, Peter Carr, Trisha Clyden, Amanda Ullman, and Shelley DeVries. This exciting luncheon, which unites global subject matter experts in discussing the core principles of vascular access, is made possible through support from 3M, Bbron, Medline Industries, and Teleflex, and it's only open to conference attendees. 
Register to attend the 2019 AVA Scientific Meeting today before the rates increase. Visit avainfo.org annual. Okay, if a patient has achieved a certain number of uh, peripheral IV cannula failures, at what point should we consider a different device? And you talked a little bit earlier about, uh, about intraosseous. So clinical context will be important. Is there, is there a certain number? And when does that decision get made to, to move away from a peripheral IV? Uh, so this is Jack. Let me just jump in. This is something I've been, you know, say, thinking about for a long term, a long time. And one of the patients we had when I was director of vascular access was a nurse in our hospital. And uh, she wound up getting uh, eight devices in 11 days and wound up with some nerve injuries. And she was receiving double an- antibiotics. I was like, you know, I was appalled. I hope I was away. I don't know why. You know, we had a trigger system. She was getting vancomycin. And then I started to think, by definition, we always choose the best vein. That's like either us, generalist, nurse, IV inserters. We always pick the best vein that's available. And um, if that fails, we go down to the next vein, which probably isn't quite as good. And once you've gone through three or four, you're really down um, a level. And so I'm, I'm just trying to think, once a certain a, a person has failed, like my lady failed PIV eight times. I mean, at what point should you consider going to a different device? And so, and toward this, I think in the world at large, the P, the peripheral IV cannula is way overutilized. In many places, you use um, peripheral IVs until you run out of veins, and then you move to something different. I'm trying to get away from that. So in the context of overutilization of PIV, when should we get PIV failure into the, into the mix and say, okay, it's time for something different? Once again, it comes back to, to education. And quite often, the decisions that are being made on which device is being placed um, are being made by more junior staff. We're not having those decisions always made by the vascular access specialist who would do a proper assessment and make the right decision up front. Quite often, it's sort of made by people that are, in, that are more junior and then just defer to the peripheral catheter as the device of choice. Absolutely, Nicole. And that is actually a great segue to what I wanted to say. One of the, one of the most jaw-dropping things in this whole realm of vascular access to me is that most of the studies that have been done on difficult access patients identify them by failed attempts. By definition, a difficult access patient has been stuck two or more times without success. And that is appalling to me that we, with all our modern science, that we can't do a better job of recognizing um, difficult patients and um, your, just like your patient there, Dr. Ladun, that when you've had peripheral IV after peripheral IV failing, at some point, somebody, we need to flag that out, call the vascular access specialist and the person who has access to the midline and the extended dwell and the, and the pick and central line needs to be looking at this patient saying, what's the, what's the one device that's going to get this patient through the rest of their treatment? And, and then making that call. But we have to do the education. Once more, we beat that drum. Do the education to, to empower people to know when they've crossed that threshold and who to call. Just to like congeal it a little bit, I'm trying to get this group to say something like, once a patient's failed two peripheral IVs, the light bulb has to go off. Now, there's no research on this, so I think 
you know, maybe it should, it could make its way into research protocols. But I'm saying like, so just for consensus here, at what number would you be concerned about continuing with peripheral IV insertion? At what number of failures would you be concerned? Sheila? You get one chance, I think. Because when we talk about venous depletion, that's, that's exactly what is going to happen. You're going to run out of veins, and then you're going to have to go to the central line. And you have all these veins that you've left behind that are, that are damaged. It's unacceptable. Sheila, I agree with you. For me, it's one. If I, I know when, so, I was hosp- when I was hospitalized and I had, they put it in my AC and they were giving me gentamicin and it, I was going to make that little sucker last. And I was on it for about six days and I made it last. I don't want to be stuck again. I don't like needles on the other end. I don't mind poking people. I don't want to be poked. So, I mean, you know, with this question, you'll get into, you know, the person's failed uh, two IVs on day four, and he's going to have another two days or three days of antibiotics. You know, what do you do in that situation? Whereas the infusates would be peripherally compatible. Should you, you know, in a patient like this, should you continue with peripheral IV, which would be, you know, absolutely say the indicated device, but because of the failures, should we now in the in the absence of any research on this you know it's right. it's really opinion based i think a but, lot of it has to do too with the patient scenario we can't just say it's it's one or it's two i obviously the ideal is one and that's what we all shoot for but we have to look at the patient scenario the patient condition and are they going to get dis- like you said jack if they've got two more days of of treatment or are they going to be discharged tomorrow um, have they failed every two hours? There's way, there's so much information that goes into that question. But as a general, as a general, if I had to pick a number out of the air, I'd say two. Again, but I think, if they fail two, you would consider going to a different, uh, moving away from just um, a percutaneous PIV insertion. I, would. I don't think well, that, I don't think that you can uh, automatically say that, that we're going to move away from any device to another device because of failure. I I think the thing that's really important for us to say is that the vascular access specialist needs to be looking at that and and asking that. Um, Absolutely. So let's talk about you. As a a sign for the generalist, you know what I'm saying? Like what what happens is the the IVs fail, the nurse gets an order from the the physician, you know, to put in another IV. I mean, like, you know, I want to have like a flag for the nurse to like, it's, it's, it's not all going to be it, specialists. It's going to, right. you know, yeah. a lot of the here's the flag. Here's the flag. Why not always a specialist? Why did that peripheral IV fail? Was it improperly placed? Was it improperly dressed? Was it improperly maintained? Was it? Did it become thrombotic, phobotic? What? What? What caused that failure? And that's what we don't do a good job at. We don't. I, I talk to people all over the country. And I, if you say to them, why do your peripheral IVs not last, like Judy, six days, seven days? We had one that lasted 19 days. Why don't they last that long? We don't know because the nurses don't know how to assess their IVs. They don't know how to chart on it. So I think we need to develop, again, this is an area of education. We need to, we need to do a better job of assessing IVs and learning why they're failing and so that we can address I- that 
length of stay. Maybe we need to empower our uh, generalist clinicians as well to be able to have, feel confident to not place a catheter as well. If they can't see a good vein, rather than Absolutely. putting, uh, rather than placing it, actually feeling like that they have the confidence to approach somebody else to to do it so that we're not having one attempt that's likely to fail. One, op we one opinion, one strong opinion I have is that the choice of a particular vascular access device should not be in the hands of a general physician. It's too complicated. There's too much. Absolutely. Like, yeah, I agree it, too. It, it should be in I the agree. hands. I don't know whose hands it should be in in general, but it should be removed. There's too much information and they have too much going on. They're net, they're net, they will not learn this. I mean, a certain specialty physicians like um, the nephrologists certainly have a good idea about the devices, you know, and the oncologists have a good idea about the devices for their patient. But in general, I think what happens is the nurse calls the doctor, the, the IV's not working. Okay, put in another IV. It's the easiest thing for him to say. Um, and I think we have to get away from that. However, I don't know how to do, how to get away from that, but I think we do. Maybe electronic medical record. You know, if we had in, this patient's already failed, two peripheral IVs, um, like make it a trigger to go to the next level, supposedly the vascular access, access team if it's available. That's what the Sorry. diva the diva scoring tools that, that, that I've been speaking on and I'm continuing to speak on, um, that's where they come in because certainly um, in the tool that, that I developed has a factor in there. Uh, and one of those factors would be uh, previous failed attempts adds to your score. And once that score gets high enough, it triggers a uh, vascular access specialist consult. And uh, I, I think that that's, uh, that's why I'm speaking about that. And I'm passionate about that because th there's too much subjective assessment going on and we need to drive objective assessment. Sure. But John, does your alert actually mean that if a person's considered a diva being flagged before, they they don't get touched by a nurse or a, a, a junior doctor that doesn't have the experience that it immediately flags to a specialist. Yeah, at a certain Inserter? level, at a certain level, they would actually they would flag. Um, there's there's patients that I absolutely um, I I would never want a nurse generalist to stick them. The difficulty, uh, Nicole, is that the fact that again I'll just pick on Judy. Cause I'm picking on her today. But the fact that Judy was difficult last time she was admitted to the hospital doesn't perforce mean that she's going to be difficult on subsequent admissions. And um, I've had pushback from that. So I think with the, with my tool, it takes into account if Judy says they had a hard time last time, if the generalist looks at her and she's got 15 great sites, then yeah, they can stick her. Um, but if she scores out high enough, then they're going to have to call the vascular access specialist and absolutely not touch her. So the issue is what happens when, when you don't have a vascular access specialist in your hospital? Uh, this is Jocelyn Hill from Vancouver, Canada, and I'm a clinical nurse educator for vascular access and IV therapy. Well, Joss, that's, that's definitely an issue. You know, ideally, I think what we're pushing for as AVA and as vascular access specialists is that we, we, we need these people. The, the problem is um, what I have seen is there is the reality that it, there are many difficult patients. If we stick them seven or eight or nine times, eventually somebody will get something in them. Meanwhile, we've destroyed seven other sites. But And how long um, will that vein last? Yeah, how long will sure, that kind of last? Sure. Right, right. So yeah, right. What, what happens is we're actually too good at, at working around the difficult problem and getting something in the patient 
and then getting something else and making it, getting it through versus doing what's best for the patient. And what's best for the patient is every hospital needs access to, to a vascular access specialist. And there's really no reason that they can't have that. We have mobile vascular access services um, all over the place. Um, so even the very small hospitals can have a contract with a mobile uh, company who can send a specialist in and get access. That's a good solution, Jocelyn. That's you know that's a the good theoretical solution to your question. Suppose there is no vascular access team, and the answer to it, as John said, is basically get in whatever you can. You know, based on the experience level at that hospital, if it's at a toe or a breast, so be it. I mean, if the patient needs vascular access, they need vascular access. You know, I think we have to try to move it to the level we're talking about, but until it gets there, these people are going to get whatever they can get. The definition of the vascular access resource or definition of the vascular access specialist or definition of the vascular access team is largely ambiguous, would you agree? So you're, you're talking about the clinical context largely there in the United States of America, whereas mm -hmm. in other countries, the clinical resource may be anesthesiology. It may be a technician. So if that resource entity arrives to the patient and they have failed on, traditionally, 50% will have failed on one PIVC, and the default thereafter is another PIVC to continue them on to the road of device failure momentum, then it, it asks the question, have we enough sufficient evidence for the concept of the vascular access specialist team? Peter Carr, Senior Lecturer in the School of Nursing and Midwifery, National University of Ireland, Galway. We all, we all believe it. We all believe in the concept, but is there enough evidence? Uh, I don't know. But, well, you know, the, and Pete, the, Pete, there, there Pete, isn't. Let me say, Pete, let me say, what you're describing, say the anesthesiologist coming or the technician, that's that hospital's vascular access team. Correct. And I, practicing. I, I, so would you accept that there are various definitions of the process for a vascular access provision? There is yes. the vascular yes. access specialist team, which we assume are in agreement of. There is a vascular access team. There is an IV team approach. There is a group of people who uh, we accept or assume are very good at putting needles into people and they might go around under the the definition as anesthesiologists, clinical nurse specialists, advanced nurse practitioners, technicians, phlebotomists and so on. So is it is it time now to set up a really good investigation that says here is a vascular access specialist team resource for you in your hospital They'll clinically assess the patient within the clinical context, and then you can resolve a lot of these, the minutiae, which is extremely complex. And bearing in mind, the discussion was on one of six devices in vascular access. Can you imagine how complex it is when you add in all the, the, the five and six other ones? Well, that's so why that, the generalists have to get out of the business of selecting particular devices. They're not going to have the information on on indications, um, alternatives, you know, risk benefits and alternatives for all the devices. They're not going to have that information. Yeah, and I, and I agree. And I, I think it sets us up for 
and Nicole has written on this in the past, is a, an expert versus a generalist um, approach in the process and and having a standard core set of outcomes that can be lifted and John Bell can use them the next year and thereafter they can be used in America, Europe, and South America and so on. And then we'll have sufficient evidence to inform hospitals. I think the clinical context then will be resolved by having a point of care resource and we'll be left with, you know, the rural hospitals will have to become specialist generalists in providing vascular access provision. Yeah. And Pete, no, and um, wait, I th- wait, let me just say, I think the kind of the model for it is the adoption of ultrasound. You know, when ultrasound first came out, it wasn't every hospital, every department had it. You know what I mean? It was I, in like... I, I, yeah, I disagree, Jack, to be honest, because if you look, if you look, and I disagree just with this kind of, what I see in clinical practice is largely in, in the ED, 50% of PIVCs will be inserted in the antecubital fossa. Now, and Nicole has t- spoken about this, ED has been, our ultrasound has been adopted into the emergency departments quicker than other spaces, and that's to be applauded. But what if I was to tell you that 50% of those PIVCs that were being inserted by ultrasound were going back into the antecubital fossa? Absolutely. So you, 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 can't, you cannot um, feed the monster in that. And you have really what you have is same, same, but different. You have the same approach by the same entities, which they have multiple competing tasks. So yes. if you give a busy emergency physician, You've got a choice. You've got an extra four minutes to assess the forearm vasculature, or you've got 45 seconds, and you know that there's a vessel there in the median cubital vein. What are you going to do? And this this frames the argument of evidence-based practice and approach. What is the clinical expertise or their practical, pragmatic wisdom at the, for the clinical scenario? And what's the latest evidence? And if, you, if your latest evidence, Jack, is bringing to the table, oh, well, ultrasound gets a superior first-time insertion success, we accept that, but we're not going to l- reveal that it's going in the antecubital as well. That's a bone of contention. And bear in mind, we, even, we haven't even brought the patient's opinion into this and what their, what their acceptability is, what's their acceptability of the numeric. Judy wants one, I'd agree with that, but... Um, it's it's very very complex. I mean, health is such a complex, movable entity. One day you've got you're febrile, the next day you're not. You're discharged, the next day you're back in again. You you can predict what the process of care is going to be, but it's it's so variable. If this invasive device, medical device, is ambiguous and without question, as you've prefaced it at the start, Jack, one of the most innovative, exciting medical devices in healthcare, then we should surely be getting it right at this stage. And I think the only way we'll be getting it right is if we have a unique science to it. And that would essentially mean that there's a vascular access specialist team or speciality monitoring all the, all the, um, the nuances of it. Would it be helpful, say, to have some sort of consensus, put out almost vessel health and preservation, put out the model of care, taking into account John Bell and Nicole Marsh and everybody's put out, this is the model. And depending on the resources in your institution, 
you will meet the model or not, but you, you'll learn, you could learn, you know, what would be expected to how to improve. I do. And, and, but I think it, 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 this is the complex nature of, um, developing an, an intervention, um, Nicole will, would, if I'm not putting Nicole on the spot, would be able to speak to that. Like it, developing an intervention as, that can be as complex as having um, a team approach. I'm sure there's been learnings from the pilot feasibility. To, you know, if you wanted to go a, nurse, a randomized control trial with a VHP approach or a, a device selection algorithm approach um, versus what currently happens in hospital would that would that be sufficient enough for stakeholders policymakers the hospital ceo to say yeah actually our results are trending down we brought in this special health and preservation with a generalist approach and our first time insertion success rate has gone from 60% to 90% this is great our appropriate device selection has gone from this this and this we've surveyed the patients they seem to be a little bit happier are we happy with this Will we not invest in the vascular access specialist team? I don't know. I think that would be another interesting question for a hospital process to to consider. Unfortunately, um, it would be wonderful, wouldn't it, if that was able to be, you know, brought into all hospitals. But the bottom dollar um, is something that um, we're contending with, and it's very difficult to put that money value on the benefit of a vascular access specialist team and I mean as as you alluded to my pilot trial did show that 25% um, of all cannulas that had been ordered and had been uh, randomized to the generalist inserter as opposed to the vascular access specialist still hadn't been placed at 24 hours so you know the cost implications and you know for the patients were, were huge but I'm not sure if um, clearly that isn't enough yet to be adopted into my hospital so something else well, th so this is the point this is the point that we have to show the value i mean i've all you know i'm a clinician i'm an inserter and all that i mean we have to show the value you know according to pete you know that the vascular access team would be neutral or cost savings to the institution that there was a business benefit to having that to having this and you know there are studies that look into nursing time, you know, there are studies that have put dollar signs, as you guys know better than I do. I think that's going to be one of the major issues of a team, if it can demonstrate value to an organization, not, not just be a cost. Absolutely. Um, I think it's very important for us all to work with our health economists to make sure that we are showing value, something that can can be uh, understood by those key stakeholders at the, at the uh, hospitals that are making those decisions. Another thing that Pete uh, brought up in this discussion, you know, Dr. Ladon, you started out talking about how do we know when we need to move away from a PIVC to something else. Um, as Pete was talking, it made me think I, I've, I've worked with teams, uh, very good teams, but that had limited device selection. Um, you know, the best yeah. teams have access to all the devices and they can make a decision between an extended dwell or a regular per peripheral IV or a midline or a central line and uh but not all teams have that and there is a lot of variability. why not john well john why not well because of uh it's a it's all because of cost it's because of um you know having to convince the hospital to buy an extra device um some, yeah. of, it, some of it's you know teams that just aren't working to their full potential sure um, 
And uh, but, I mean, there's a lot you know, of once variability. Once you say something out. like, you know, there's a team that doesn't have what they need, that should be relatively easy to fix. If you, you know, if you could demonstrate, you know, the value of that product, you know what I mean? Um, and I mean, it's hard to fight every battle every day. But, it um, is, but I think that the 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 what I would say the the consistent the the consistent thing that I see between teams that don't have access to stuff is that they're not fully owning the the vascular access specialty. I see pick nurses that are basically doing ultrasound guided blind insertion, which is what the ER is doing if they're putting fifty percent of their um, catheters in the antecubital. They're looking with the ultrasound and then they're sticking the vein. They're not actually they're not actually guiding their needle in with ultrasound the way we would expect a specialist to do it. The specialist knows that they need a longer product that they can get into deeper veins under ultrasound. And, and they're going to, they're going to be able to make that pitch to their hospital administration. The specialist knows that they can save the hospital money and they're going to be able to make that pitch. Not all at once, not, they're not going to win every battle like you said tomorrow, but they're going to, they're going to be able to do that. And to the extent that that's not being done, I think that what we're seeing is people who are pick nurses more than they are vascular access specialists or some variation of that. John, I see, um, to your point, that they don't have everything they need. I still see hospitals that, or vascular access slash pick teams that only have a five French dual catheter available to them. Or um, in their hospital, the, the acute CBC is a 16 centimeter catheter and they don't even have a 20 or, or something longer, hopefully. So, and patients come with, in different sizes. Yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> they definitely do. So there's a, not only education, but there's issues with product. It, it's really complex, the concerns and issues we have. But it's, it's, is it really that complex? If, if, if I'm working someplace and all I've got is a five French dual and they're expecting me to hammer this five French dual pick into everybody, um, whether they're a 90 pound little old lady or a big strapping uh, he-man like Dr. Ladun, you know, Thank you, John. I, I'm going to say no. I, you know, yeah, this is appropriate for, for Dr. Ladun's big beefy arms, but for, for my grandmother, it's it's probably not appropriate. She doesn't have a big enough vein to hold that five French. 100% uh, true. 100% true. But it takes a leader within that team to say no. And sadly, I don't believe we have leaders on each team. Some people come in, it's their job, and they, yes. go, home, they go home at four. And they don't live, you know, breathe and eat this stuff kind of in the way that we often do. So they don't take it to the same level and they wouldn't say no. They say, Oh, that's what I got. And yeah. unfortunately, so I think that's, that's part of the problem we have. All right. So a new metric that uh, Dr. Ladun proposed, the numerator is the number of devices and the denominator would be the number of inpatient days. What do you guys think of that? Um, let me just jump in with a little context. This is something that um, was brought to my attention by uh, Rob Dawson a couple of years ago. When, Kind of so when you think about say vessel health and preservation, all things we've been talking about, one of the um, philosophies that's being developed is we're trying to limit the number of sticks and we're trying to limit the number of devices. I think this is a way, like when you look at the vessel health and preservation book, it's great, it's beautiful, and it's big, it's a Megillah. You know what I mean? Like, I think a metric like this, and I'm just proposing it would be like 
you know, when a person leaves the, the hospital, how many devices do they have? How many days were they in? And the flip might be more important, like how many days per devices? Well, to be a way of showing where we stand in this. So it's, it's just sort of a proposal. Um, I, I see the simplistic beauty in it, but I'd like to hear what other people have to say. As a non-clinician, it is quite elegant. And, and I think that the reach for vascular access as a specialty is, is incumbent on getting people that aren't the intelligentsia of this space engaged with what it can produce. Uh, anything like that, this, Jack, I think is helpful. But I, you know, now I'll defer to the, the experts. I think if you ask 100% of the patients out there that come out of the hospital and say, how many devices and what's acceptable, they're going to say one. But for the clinicians, again, it's variable. If they come in and they came in for whatever the, the case, they had um, foot debridement, but then they ended up with osteo, that's going to be more than one device, more than likely. Great. So, but if it's eight devices? If it's eight devices, that's wholly ridiculous, um, in my opinion. It's really hard to come up with that number, Jack. Um, if we go for public perception, it's one. And obviously, that's our goal. But... Um, not, See, it's it's, it's not just realistic. a metric. It's not it's not a goal. It's not. It's just a number of like maybe a scorecard of where we are. So it might be overly simplistic. No, but as soon as you start, if you could start measuring that, then you could start to say, well, you know, here's what the average is, and and yes. here's the outliers on this. You know, the yes. really good outliers. All how many people are um, getting only one device? If the average is three. And and then we have this person with eight. That's a huge outlier, right? Yeah. But and part I, of it, I bet it, we'd be surprised at what the number would be. I think it you know goes I mean? back, it like everything else, back to education. Because if you get the patient out in the boondocks that has 15 devices in their six-day stay, and they're getting really caustic meds through those 15 devices, then that's that's a number that has a lot of factors to it. Versus the patient that's in a Georgetown or one of the, the really strong hospitals with vascular access teams to where their one device is, is the appropriate device from the get-go. And uh, it's really that's hard what to the judge. Metric would see, see, that's what the metric would demonstrate. In other words, the, Judy, the example you brought up in the rural hospital. So now you go to the hospital and say, look, we're putting in 15 devices. We could, we could do, we could do better. Generally speaking, we could do better. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's kind yeah. of like quote data. I'm not saying the righteousness or wrongness. It's just a way to simplify the conversation. And I, I you know, Wait, I'm, can, I'm can't you just, can, can, can't you just simulate that economic equation then? Can't you take that to um, a very clever economist and get them to say, well, look, if if the number of P PIVCs that are going in in this type of patient is six per eight-day stay, um, give us the economic evaluation of that. Isn't that a hypothetically yes. better, stronger argument to bring? But I, w I would add... I think Lee Steer did that. I think Lee Steer's paper has some yeah. good economic... Yeah. Yeah, I, w I would add by s suggesting is that we do measure people when they come into hospital um, 
you know how many PIVCs would you like or how many whatever and <laughs> they as as has been mentioned people always will generally say um one but it's measuring them on the way out that I think is far more important. It's what was so. This comes to the perception and the realities. So the perception is that people want just the minimum amount, but in the reality, what is that? Um, and I think you'll find that that'll be very, very high. Yeah, and Judy, one point is like there are patients certainly that would require more than one device, depending on how complex, as as you pointed out. So I mean, um, it's not. You know, there's no goodness or badness to the number, but it's just showing like, you know, the complicated patients certainly would get more than one device. I mean, today, certainly they would get more than one device and hopefully they would get less than 12 devices. Um, those of you that do research, you know, if you think this thing has some, you know, value, like, we'll, you know, we'll try to put it in. It wouldn't be that hard to, to look at, but of course, it's, it is anything that you add is more work and somebody has to do it. I do like the idea like that Pete had, rec- had suggested modeling it out with hypothetical data and then inputting real data to see just how far off and how it moves and situationally what what it's impacted by. Yeah, we, you, Nicole, you could definitely fit that in somewhere in a vascular access specialist team approach versus the generalist, do you think? I'm being facetious there. But I do agree. I do agree. <laughs> I would like to thank Dr. Jack Ledun for listening to the I Save That podcast and speaking up to raise the vein of contention which created this episode. I would also like to thank our panelists, Jocelyn Hill, Peter Carr, Judy Thompson, Sheila Hale, Nicole Marsh, and John Bell for joining to discuss it. You can see the entire AVA network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org, which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. We want to again extend a hearty thank you to all our members of the panel who joined us for this episode and the discussion on the vein of contention. Dr. Jack Ledun, John Bell, Peter Carr, Judy Thompson, Jocelyn Hill, Nicole Marsh, and Sheila Hale. Thanks to our loyal listeners, and thanks as always to Dabney Coleman. The topics discussed on the I Save That podcast are purely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decisions that affect your health or the health of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the Fair Use Doctrine as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this broadcast or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in part or in any form without prior written consent from the Association for Vascular Access.